Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 645 with my guest, uh, Miller. That's a pseudonym we're using for uh, for my buddy. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. And this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, the website for this show and the social media handles is uh, MentalPod. If there is uh, an episode that you're looking for, just uh, Google uh, a keyword and include the word MentalPod. And if there's an episode on that subject, it should uh, it should pop up. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Lolly, and she writes, a number of weeks ago, I was listening to uh, episode 634, your interview with Dr. Carolyn Curley, while walking my dog. I think this might be the only episode that really, really annoyed me. I'm not big on the new wavy concept of the universe being knowable and uncontrollable. I find it an excuse for not taking personal accountability. Getting to the point, my jaw dropped when you said, the thing that I struggle with most, uh, and uh, quote, the thing that I struggle with the most is the wreckage in the people that I affected. That's a really, really hard thing to let go of, unquote. And her response was, quote, I would ask you, is it all, quote, unquote, bad that you caused them pain? Unquote. <laughs> this is very confusing. This episode is about quotes. You replied, yes, their pain. And she stunned me when she said, we don't know what the universe is doing. There's so much that's unknown. Right. So what if you were just playing the part of that experience because it was for them to also learn something? End quote. So she is quoting Dr. Carolyn Curley. Uh, and then back to the listener who's writing. She babbled on with more nonsense. And by then, I was so angry I couldn't go back to verify that I was really hearing that crap until now. I think back to my childhood being beaten to a pulp physically and verbally, and there is no way I can imagine that served a potentially beautiful purpose. I know you can't control and don't necessarily agree with the views of your guests, but I wonder why didn't you push back on that? Thank you for for um, asking that question. I think that's a that's a great question. And while I can't remember exactly what my thought process is then, but reading reading this 
my feeling is everybody has their own thoughts on the way the universe works or doesn't work. And I don't know if, if I'm right or if I'm com- completely wrong and same with somebody else. And so, uh, I'm not going to, um, get into a, I don't know, a disagreement about something that neither of us know. What I will say and I think this agrees with your point, is it is not for us to say whether or not someone's trauma brings meaning to their life. That is for them to decide or not to decide. So, um, if yes, that, and maybe I should have said that, um, because while it might be true that trauma, I feel that the trauma that I've experienced in my life has brought meaning to my life, but it's been... uh, uh, I, I don't know if I would want to do it again. Um, it's taken a lot of work, and I, I certainly enjoy the life that I have, but if somebody experienced what I experienced and they were in pain, I wouldn't say, but look at how much meaning this is going to bring to your life. I would never, I would never say that. That would... You know, the closest I would ever get to saying that is if somebody's trying to recover from drugs and alcohol. I would say one of the things I never imagined in having to get sober is that I would find meaning by then turning around and helping other people because people helped me. That's about as close as it would get. But I think trauma is is maybe a little bit different than an addiction. So I hope that all makes sense. But thank you for uh, thank you for. For writing in could i make a louder noise at the uh at the end of that <laughs> maybe i'll maybe i'll back a, a garbage truck into the office here this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves uh if life is about minimizing regret i'm not trying very hard uh, about their anxiety they write if i could just get through my checklist i could finally relax about their OCD, like there is some undiscovered formula for perfection that I alone have been tasked with discovering. Snapshot from their life that highlights their struggles. My OCD is focused around fear of food poisoning, so naturally there is a lot of food waste. I frequently make meals, become afraid of what I've made, pivot, and make a new one. One night, when things were particularly bad, I looked up the clock on my stove, 11 p.m., and I still hadn't eaten a bite. Meanwhile, I'd made not one, not two, but six meals. No ritual, no compulsion could make me feel safe enough to eat even a single bite of any of it. I went to bed hungry and crying. My God, that sounds so awful. The next morning, I woke up. And with the feeling of shame and defeat that accompanied hitting rock bottom, thought, you know what? I don't care if I die from eating something contaminated anymore. I said, fuck it, and ate a big tuna salad sandwich. It was the most satisfying meal I've ever eaten because I hadn't eaten basically anything for the past few months. And my body was starving for nutrients. And I lost about 40 pounds in a matter of months. I started therapy a week week after my low point and have been slowly getting better. I love it. I love it. Wow. That was a great, uh, was like a little movie of the week. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself what the word is, is. 
And uh, she says, hello, are there episodes in which you describe the things you deal with emotionally, mentally, and what your life has been and is like in more detail? Uh, is there an episode in which you're interviewed? Um, yes, there, there is. Uh, and I believe the name of the episode is Paul Gets Interviewed. So like I said earlier in the podcast, if you just Google Metal Pod, um, uh, Paul gets interviewed. It'll it'll probably pop up. My friend Lisa Arch interviewed me. It was I want to say it was like eight years ago, maybe something like that, seven years ago. So yeah, some stuff has changed since then. And while I do pepper my life throughout the the episodes, um, there hasn't been a interview per se since then. Um, This is uh, also from the Ask Paul Anything survey. I love this name. This woman calls herself Nina Simone's Ego. Man, if you have never heard the Nina Simone song, Feeling Good, holy fuck. Put it on. If you're in a bad mood and you want something that's going to give you some energy, I don't know, maybe it'll piss you off. Maybe it will bring meaning to your life. Feeling Good by Nina Simone. So good. Uh, she says, I imagine that given the nature of your show, you've gotten survey entries or messages that have been too dark, violent, or threatening to share. Is that true? Can you talk about it? Have you ever felt the need to report someone? Have you gotten messages, messages of transference when people think they're in love with you or something? Um, I, I had to kick someone out of the forum, uh, once and, uh, I was more active in the forum back then. I, I really kind of um, don't have much to do with the with the forum these days. But there was a person, and I believe it was a thread. It was when I was going through processing the the incest stuff and cutting contact with my mom. And and this person was being very hostile to people in the forum, and uh, he was judging, uh, you know, telling people that it wasn't what they experienced wasn't a big deal. And, and boy, if there, if you were to make a top 10 list of the things that are fucked up to say to someone who is hurting, that is one of them. And I just thought this person is, he, he, I gave him a warning and, and he's kept doing it. And, um, and, and if I remember correctly, he said, um, that his mom had given him oral sex, and that was abuse. And what I had experienced was not abuse. And um, and I was just like, this this guy's not safe. I can't have him um, in the in the forum. And it hurt my feelings. It hurt my feelings because I also think a lot of survivors we go back and forth in our brain about whether or not we're making too big of a deal of what what we're dealing with. And this guy had never really also. Um, processed it he was just filled with so much so much rage understandably but uh, i hope i hope he is doing well but it kind of scared me a little bit because i was like this guy sounds so fucking angry is this kind of is this guy gonna come after me um i have read some surveys that were super super fucking dark in fact i used to keep a little pile of them and i thought well maybe one day i'll do an episode of this shit that is just the darkest of the dark and i've never i've never done that i haven't given up the idea of doing that but i wonder if that would even be something that would be of benefit 
for people or if that would just be, I don't know, sensational. But I've, I've read surveys where people talk about having murdered someone. Um, I got an email once from a guy who um, said the podcast was helping him. He had just been released from prison and he had gone uh, to prison for molesting both of his daughters. And, and he, you know, said, you know, I will never be able to forgive myself for what I did, but, uh, I am seeking help and I'm putting my effort in, into that. And I thought, well, that's about as good of an outcome as you can have after something horrible like that happens. Um, a lot of times I will edit out if there's talk of, animals being tortured um and you know I, I, and i say to myself well why do you sometimes read stuff that involves cruelty to human beings but you wouldn't read about cruelty to animals and i i don't know the answer to that i just know that when stuff involves cruelty to to animals, it hits me in a different place. And I think, I don't think I'm alone in that. And it's not that I think it's more tragic. It makes me feel, um, I guess, because animals can't speak, um, that, that there's something extra sad about that, that they will never get to say, hey, this happened to me. Whereas with the person, they may get a chance to say, hey, this happened to me. And and heal. And as far as the transference, I, I, I'm not aware that anybody has ever fallen in 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 love with me. Um, I'm pretty clear about boundaries between the podcast and my and my personal life, but it's not like I'm I'm fending fending off uh, people knocking on my door with flowers. This is from the fear survey. Uh, filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves, if life, oh, this is the same person, but this is actually a different uh, survey. And they uh, write, I fear that I'm not actually disliked or hated by people, but in reality that people are just ambivalent about me, that I am nothing special, and that ultimately I am forgettable. That one hit me really deep because that used to be one of my deepest fears and I don't know if it was a conscious fear um, but I, I do not think you are alone and and feeling that one and I think if you look at social media isn't that what it really is is we just want to say you know am I memorable am I special please don't forget me hey I'm over here and you know going back to the thing about support groups and having people help us when we get in there and then turning around and being able to have enough wisdom or insight to help somebody else, that was when the feeling of me being forgettable began to disappear because I used to think it was going to happen from being on TV and that it was just never enough. I always felt like I'm not special enough. I need this, this needs to be bigger, better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until I spent multiple nights a week church basements with complete strangers who wanted nothing but the best for each other that I began to feel that my life 
is not forgettable, that there is meaning in it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I had a great session uh, Monday with my therapist, Heidi. And every time I go to do therapy, I I never look forward to it. I've, I've probably done therapy uh, on and off for 30 years, if not longer. And every time I get to the end of a session, I think I'm so glad I did that. There was all these things that I didn't think I needed or wanted to talk about, but I wound up talking about them. And my my relationship with my therapist is, it's kind of a maintenance. Uh, we're kind of in a maintenance uh, phase, and I, and I really like it um, because there's no big thing that I'm working through that's, that's unresolved. Um, all the addictions are kind of being managed, and I'm doing the stuff I need to do, but it's just, it's, sometimes it's just nice to check in with somebody and, and to just be reminded uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm staying in my lane and doing a good job. So that, that's one of the things, one of the many things I get out of therapy. Uh, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And please include the slash mental part so that they, they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Uh, and then finally, this is an, an awfulsome moment filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Single Daddy 420. I think we've read one of her uh, surveys before. And she writes, my first relationship was with a 19-year-old when I was 15. He was a weird fuck who told our mutual friends about masturbating after making out with me, licked my tits in public, and fingered me in a graveyard. Let's, let's let that sink in for a second. Fingered me in a graveyard, and I'm sure she's not the only person that's ever been fingered in a graveyard, but that that's like two levels of inappropriate. You got the age difference there, and that, I don't know, maybe a graveyard's not 
an inappropriate. Maybe it's a sacred place for, for some people who, who, anyway, continuing. The awfulsome part is that he wanted to become a human-cat hybrid. It was like being pursued sexually by the most negative possible stereotype of a furry as a real person. He had long, serious chats with me about how the surgical capabilities of humanity are always advancing and how someday he would truly become his fursona. And then in parentheses, a blue cat with a 12-inch long tongue for superior oral sex, obviously to be had with me. End of parentheses. I would think this shit was made up had I not sat there myself and tried to yes and it to make the situation okay because this is what I felt I deserved. He also drank maple syrup straight from the bottle and told me he hadn't cried in 10 years. A week or so after finger banging me in the graveyard, he dumped me over AIM because his parents told him I was too young and I cried for six hours. As he logged off, I remember staring at the poorly drawn avatar image of his fursona. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> the greatest source of our suffering. Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. Is very hard to heal and dark isolation. I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm here with uh, my buddy. We're going to call him Miller so he can he can feel free to open up about his scandalous past. Uh, we've known each other, what, two years? Some have. Yeah. Uh, started coming to the support group that, that I've been going to for 19, almost 20 years. And I'm trying to remember when you rolled in there. Were you right out of prison? No, no, no. I uh, came right out of rehab. Okay. And uh, I needed friends, really. Yeah. And, you know, I've never had friends in my life. So being accepted by the uh, club is, is pretty amazing, you know? Yeah, dude. We, we, we were excited to have you. It's funny because we can see in other people what they can't cannot yet see in themselves. Yeah, and somebody told me, "Uh, you're doing better than you think you are," and it blew my mind. Like, I really am doing better than I think I am. Yeah. But you know, I still can't believe it. Doesn't make it. Doesn't change the fact that I don't believe it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, so you're you're how old? I'm 43. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you want me to just go into a description of myself? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm a 43-year-old, mostly Scottish white man, 6'1", like a little above norm normal height and weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tattoos? From, tattoos, yeah. I'm from, I'm from a Hispanic gang mm -hmm. and a prison gang. And uh, that started when I was about 14, but maybe younger. How were you in a... a Hispanic gang in prison? I was already in a, a Hispanic gang on the streets. 
Right, but prison is prison is a whole different whole um, different story. Don't you? The whites stick with the whites, and the Latinos well, stick with the Latinos. So the the gang thing is a choice you shouldn't make when you're young, but like you stick with that, no matter what you choose. You do, yeah. So, and so there there aren't uh, shot callers having a problem with uh, all of a sudden the white boys. I mean, maybe some of them, but like not a whole lot of people have a problem with anything I do. It's uh, I lead a different kind of um, authority like life, you know. Right, but um, and and like the Aryan Brotherhood, they didn't have a problem in prison with a white guy. But they do with the black, the white Crips or the Bloods. But um, see, the the blacks and the Northerners and the others have one side of the prison. They're they're segregated from us by our standards. Like okay. in, as the inmates, we separate from the whites and Hispanics one side of the day room, and then. The blacks and northern Hispanics oh. and the others on the other side of the day. I got you. We can't sell up with them. None of that stuff. So right. we could eat and we party with and hang out with, with the whites. We use the same bars in the yard. We oh. use the same TV. But like we don't do that with the blacks or the northern Hispanics, which is a distinctive prison gang thing. Right. The Norteños and the Sorenos. Yeah. I am actually a, a member of the Sorenos. Yeah. Um, and have you officially left? No, there's no there's official no leaving. leaving. There's just, you know, you got your ass kicked and someone vouches for you. That's why. That's how you get in. And then your actions from that point on dictate where you're at in the food chain and what happens to you. But your life is different now than it used to be. You're, you're on the straight and narrow. Uh, yeah, straight and uh, bumpy, maybe. Not narrow. It's not a yeah. very narrow road. Right, but... Maybe emotionally bumpy, but legally, uh, from what I've heard you share, you're you're on the straight and narrow. You're leading an honest life. You're helping people. Yeah. Well, I, the straight, I, I agree with, but the narrow part of that whole thing is like, kind of cuts me off from like the wide range of things that I that I actually accomplish in life right now. But uh, yes, straight and narrow. I got off of probation and parole, and it's amazing for me. My parole officer used to like give me compliments all the time. He used to. Uh, Tell me strange things like guys your age with your career never get back, never get out. This is unheard of. You should pat yourself on the back. I completed all the um, requirements of the court recently. Mm-hmm. They gave me a five-year, eight-month eight joint suspension, three years probation, and I finished all the all the stuff they wanted me to do, the domestic violence, the uh, drug program, the continued aftercare. I did that, and then I went and managed the sober living for two years on top of that. The first two years that I did – after they sentenced me, um, made it so that I could go into the courthouse and ask the judge to dismiss it. And uh, they changed it and said, made it so it said expired. My probation officer was shocked. He'd never seen nothing like that. I'd never seen him do anything like that, but I, you know, never was right before. Never stayed clean long enough. Uh, was domestic violence uh, a part of your environment as a kid growing up? Absolutely not. No. Where did it, where did it come from with you? Was it, uh, were you physically abusing your uh, partner? No, no. Uh, well, I mean, I was ye- I was emotionally maybe abusing her. Like, she was me. Uh, she was my off-again, on-again, like, die-heart love. And we were at a hotel. I took too much acid. And uh, That's how all good stories start, don't they? Yeah. I mean, if they don't, then <laughs> I kind of tune out halfway through it. Uh, and I lost the room. And some, somehow, I couldn't find the room. I talked to the clerks in the front, and when she finally came out with some of my stuff in the morning, I was so hot and angry, and she's just 
I mean, I couldn't describe the uh, emotions and the brain trauma that I was going through at the time, but I, I shot her car with her standing next to me. I shot her car and she screamed and ran away like I, you know, had shot somebody and uh, I took off and that's what the domestic violence gotcha. was. It, they didn't even get me to, uh, I didn't get convicted to anything domestic violence. They just added on the classes at the end for shits and giggles because I was already <laughs> pleading out for something else and they knew they knew that I knew that I should be taking 10 years on that one. So you're 43 years old. How many years have you spent in prison or jail? Um, effectively half my life. I've done six terms. I've been convicted to 17 different felonies. Um, I say different, but most of them are the same. And are you comfortable sharing them? I know in prison you're not supposed to ask somebody what they're in for. Well, in prison you have to show paperwork proving that you didn't come you're- in for certain crimes because uh, in general population we don't – we don't accept certain crimes as like you're going to let you hang out. You right. Know? Pedophiles, stuff like that. Sex yeah. crimes. Telling on somebody else. Uh, Snitching. Yeah. So uh, my crimes were mostly stolen cars, GTA mm-hmm. and possession of firearms and uh, th- just theft related bullshit for most of my career. And then at the end, I was like, oh, man, if I stop stealing stuff, maybe I'll stay out longer. And I sure as fuck did. Long enough to start selling dope and catch up a couple of dope cases. Um, last time I was – before I went to prison last time, I uh, I got busted for sales. And the sales – And what were you selling? Coke, meth? Meth, meth yeah. yeah. But I had a whole bunch of LSD, and uh, they got me with meth. My bail was 35000 or something, and I was doing good enough to where my girlfriend took my money and went and bailed me out. And then I went to the bail office. They put an ankle monitor on me. They raided the house like two weeks later and got me with more drugs. And I bailed out at the station because the bail was still low. Once they com- they knew that I was on another bail already, they'd combine them and it would be high. But they bailed me out with a new bail agent, a different bail company. So uh, when I got out, I went down there and they're like, okay, you're going to put an ankle monitor on you because you can't stay out. We got to know what you're doing, but you got to pay them separately. We've already worked it out with your girlfriend. You're going to pay 500 a week to us and then 300 a month to the, the ankle monitor company. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, whatever. I'm out. I don't care. I'm like showing up to the bail office every week with a different chick, paying them their money, uh, just generally looking like a, a weirdo coming in there, you know, dirty and covered in road rash one week and then coming in there clean, wearing a suit the next week because I had court. And the owner of the bail bonds agent like, how's business? And I look at him. I'm like, that's kind of a weird question. I guess that kind of depends on like how long he's going to let me stay out if my business is doing bad. Right. Right. But he knows I'm selling drugs. Mm-hmm. So he calls me in the back because. I guess business is slow for him, too, when he accepted a payment of uh, meth. I see. So now we needed wanted somebody to get rid of it for him. So now my hand, wash your hand, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, he was charging me more than the Pisces I was working with, but, you know, it was still more worth it to buy from him every other pickup. So I would, and uh, every time I got busted after that, didn't matter what the bail amount was. Every time I'd go to court, they'd take me in. Every time I'd, I'd hit the county, I'd sell all the dope I brought in with me, and then he'd bail me out. And then I'd run around, catch another case. He'd bail me out at the station because it was still low. I'd go to court. They'd take me in, and I'd have a whole bunch of dope on me. And then he'd bail me out. And it went like that until I got to uh, 980-something thousand. Actually, they, they, what? Put it, they put it at 1.2, and he couldn't do anything for that. So I had to petition the ACLU on paper. And they, they talked to the courthouse and the judge, and they got it lowered to uh, 980,000. And he goes, if this is the last time I can get you out, bro. You're like... I had to put the whole everything up to get you out. And I'm like, dude, I'm, you know, I'm good for it. At this point, I'm paying $500 twice a week, 
paying him $2,700 a pound every other week when I could have picked up three or four from him at that price. I had six cars, four motorcycles, two families of five that I supported because, you know, who could who could stop with just one girlfriend and serious relationship? Two pit bull puppies at different houses, and uh, more that more to do than I could even fucking want to do. Like I, and, and and let's talk about what your soul felt like at that at that time. What what was your inner life then? Your thoughts about yourself, the world around you, your past, your future. Um. So my my past is uh, kind of uh, sorbid, like. It's got. A, I've got a lot very unique story to say as a childhood. Um, but so at the time, I felt like used, just used up. Everybody around me only wanted one thing for me, and it, it varied by person what that one thing was. But I had. To, I had no nobody I could rely on. You know, it was just me, and I, everybody relied on me. And I'm running around on a motorcycle, uh, and a backpack full of meth and a gun, thinking that. I knew I was going to go to prison. I knew I was going back. I mean, I had four cases at the same place at the same time in front of the same judge. I had to have a state-appointed attorney because the public defender's office was representing somebody that got busted with me but turned evidence on me. And the the alternative public defender's office was representing another friend of mine in a different case that was telling on me. Uh, so I just felt kind of like when they when they finally couldn't bail out anymore and asked the judge to exonerate my bail, which you have to do or they come after you for that money later on in life. Uh, I felt relieved. Like it was like a weight was taken off of me. What does it mean to exonerate someone's bail? So they, um, bail is a right by law. Right. And it's set by the crime that you commit and the risk of you taken off. Right. Uh, so you, they post bail and you owe that money to the bail bondsman because he supposedly is putting up that much money to make sure that you come to court. Right. I understand that part of it. When you get it exonerated, it means you no longer wish to have bail available. Like you're going to see up the case in jail, in custody until it's done. And you could ask for that if you think that like whatever whatever you're doing, you don't think you need to bail out or you can't bail out. So it's just people do that if they don't trust themselves to not flee. I've never heard of anybody doing that except to just like end the fact that the bail bondsman is expecting his payments every week. Right. Even though you're in custody. So let's go, let's go back to like when you were uh, a kid and you fell in with the gangs, were you raised in the San Fernando Valley? I was, but uh, I was actually raised not far from here, North Hollywood. Okay. On uh, five blocks away from where the sober living was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember being like four or five running around the streets right there. You know, playing in the apartments, but we lived on the corner of uh, four blocks of lower development housing. And in the eighties, it was pretty. It was pretty crazy in North Hollywood. Like it was the. It's still a little crazy in North Hollywood. It yes, uh, North Hollywood is the armpit of the valley. <laughs> it's the most exciting place, and the the one place that you you for sure could find whatever you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you have to drive around L.A. There's other places that are known for specific things. North Hollywood is known for like whatever you want. Yeah. If you want to get shot, go to North Hollywood. That's uh, yeah. If you want the, to shoot somebody, yeah, the best more. place in the valley to see a bullet, <laughs> yeah. and it and it's where our meeting place is that that I know you from. Um, and I've told the story on the podcast. You we weren't coming to the the meeting yet, but when that uh, shooting happened right outside our front door, and a guy came 
running in full of bullet holes, blood spurting out of him like a fountain. Uh, a lot of guys never came back from after that. They're like, this place is too fucking dangerous. But yeah. anyway, I digress. Uh, so you raised in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you fall in with the gang? Well, when I li- when we lived in North Hollywood, my let me go back a little bit even further than that. My uh, my parents met when they were teens. My dad had never been with another woman. They never needed anything in life but love. They were uh, in love so much to the exclusion of the rest of the world. So we didn't have much. We had just enough. And I was rapidly growing and larger than most kids and uh, insanely intelligent and active as hell. I have ADHD and I was like uh, above average in uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I could get more trouble than most people faster than anybody else I knew. And uh, I could talk my way out of it mostly, mostly. Uh, before I, anybody else knew I was getting in trouble. That being said, uh, I was maybe five or six when I met, yeah, a, a kindergarten, five, five years old, when I met my buddies that I would later on in life call uh, gang member f- brothers, whatever, because um, we got jumped in the next year. We were six years old, and we had to walk the line to the, the Elmer Street Project gang. That's where they lived, in the Elmer Projects. And uh, You got jumped into a gang at six. Yeah, me and all my little friends from school. We lived right next to the Fair Avenue Elementary School that uh, we attended regularly. But we, we, I mean, we'd be in class, but we didn't learn much. I thought I was the smartest kid there because I was the only one who uh, spoke English, their first language. I thought, you know, wow, I'm a genius. <laughs> I know everything. These guys are dumb. But uh, I just understand the language. So that helped me in life. Like, Did you speak Spanish at all? I mean, no, I, I've never, I, I know how I know a lot of Spanish, but I don't try speak to speak it because it gotcha. it's not my heritage. Right. And uh, that became like a big deal that a lot, they made sure that I understood that a long time ago. You know, like be, racism is a real thing. But like when you're the minority, uh, you, you tend to feel it a little more violently than. So I understand like uh, people not digging the whole racism thing because I've been held accountable for a bunch of stuff that I never did to certain people that, uh, you know, anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah. And I started getting high really young, uh, you know, six years old being courted into the gang. Like we started, we started hanging out in fifth grade with all the older kids from school. And my buddy had his brother, his older brother was from the gang. He actually had five older brothers and they lived in a, a two bedroom apartment. But, uh, yeah, we started hanging out and that was it. And so, how did your behavior escalate? Uh, was it was it always theft? You know, where was there? Uh, well, I imagine there had to be physical fights with other gangs. Yeah, well, I mean, it was in the eighties. Was there was those cell phones and, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of crack just come out and everybody's running around crazy and shooting stuff up and stereos were real loud and gangsters was real, you know, and it was cool and it was fun and it was normal for me to like go to school act insane, fight other kids at school, fight my way home from school, make sure my brother got home safe, and then act normal in front of my parents. And when you would fight on your way home from school, fist fist fights? Yeah. Gun, not gun fights? No. Okay. Like, we were too young to be, you know. Carrying. Carrying, yeah. But we did other jobs for the hood, like lookout. Um, they used to sit on, me and my, two of my other buddies, we'd sit on the curb and watch the, uh, the madams, walk up and down the street and they'd go into the Vano and studio apartments when they get one 
and we just played tic-tac-toe. When one went in, there was an X. When one they came back out, there was a circle, and they should so there should be a certain amount of money for whoever's game of tic-tac-toe scored points, you know? Uh our one of our older homies was running ladies out of there and had to deal with the management and <clears throat> it was just uh normal as a kid to like experience this kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I turned seventeen, eighteen that I really started realizing like you need to fucking slow down or you're gonna die. I never thought I'd make it to twenty one, let alone forty three, but uh we got my parents got wind of my activities. Because we lived in apartments just outside the, the project, but on the same street. And they got wind of like what was going on when the neighbors told them if they could ask me to make sure that their car wasn't touched or something because they owed my homeboy money. Uh, we moved back. We moved up to Santa Clarita when I was about 12. Uh, for those of you outside Los Angeles, uh, Santa Clarita is kind of a much more wholesome suburb about a half hour north of where we are and we're talking about. Yeah, over the mountain and through the woods. Yes. It's it's, uh, it's a nice place. It's predominantly white. It's a whole different uh, feel up there. That's where yes. most of the cops from the L.A. area live. So we lived up there. We moved up there to live with my grandparents. And uh, everything slowed down and pretty much stopped. Like, it, it was very uh, change of pace, you know, the big geographical. When you're that young, you can't can't really get away. And so were you separated from your friends then? I was, but only as much as, uh, you know, 45-minute drive can take you. Right. So we moved up there and... Uh, how'd, you, how'd you start getting back in trouble again? Well... My my parents, uh, like I, as I got older, I started getting more active in the in the in the gang, and uh, so like eighty eight, eighty nine uh, were bad years for the gang. Um, everybody was getting killed. I remember LAPD showing up with riot gear and the big, the big see through shields and a tank with a big uh, plate of metal on the barrel with a happy face on it, and they're using that plate on the barrel to knock down the front doors of all the apartments on uh, Backman Street. It was pretty. It was pretty nuts, you know, just everybody running around all crazy. LAPD marching down the street and everybody's trying to get out of their apartment before they get there to knock down the door and run in. It was it was wow. pretty amazing. Yeah, it looked like a parade, except they were taking everybody to jail. Wow. And uh, after that happened, a lot of people were gone. So us younger generation got to step up and take on a lot more responsibility. Uh, started making money, started, you know, being big You're time. No longer the lookout. Yeah, now we're now we're big time. Like whoever got out first, whoever could bail out or wasn't in the neighborhood at that time was still around. Uh, but a lot of the guys that did get taken in got taken in for big things, you know, stuff that back in back in the day you get busted with a dub of, of drugs, you're going four years minimum. Now you they just cite you out, but you know, there's no uh, there's no getting off on certain crimes, and so half the half the gang disappeared. It wasn't long after that that, uh, you know, the other gangs had closed on us and started taking land, and, yeah, money and uh, people out, you know, lost a lot of friends. I, I mean, I, I guess we can't really call them friends, but lost a lot of people that I was close to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my parents moved to Santa Clarita and we moved to a trailer park in the middle of nowhere. And it was very change of pace. It was very, like, hard for me. And uh, I, when I hit junior high... You know, I, so about the time I was 12 years old, 
before we left, I had found a needle in the street. I'd, I'd been, you know, selling drugs and acting stupid. I saved it and I started using the needle uh, to do meth. And so when we moved to Santa Clarita, I was, you know, not only did I lose all my friends and everything I thought I knew, but my drug connections and everything. So I found some drugs in my parents' bathroom and uh, did it. And it was fucking, my dad had way better dope than we had. And I got, it was obvious. They were, it was plain to see that I was loaded. So what, what kind of dope? Meth. Yeah. Yeah. And so I got, you know, busted by my parents and school and like, everybody's like, he's weird. Like, we don't know what's going on with him. Cause when you're that young, nobody expects you to be fucking. Did your parents know that you were using their dope? No, 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 I'm not. No, they didn't. Um, it wasn't until two years later when my dad found out that I had better dope than he did. Cause I took all his and tried to replace it. That uh, he just started buying it for me because he didn't have to make the trips to the valley to buy it. Wow. My mom pretended like she didn't know. It was a big secret with her. But the only rule at the house was you can't smoke it or slam it. So I got kicked out regularly for both those reasons. And uh, How else are you going to do it if you, if you don't smoke it or slam it? Um, you could snort it. You could eat it. You could put it in your, I mean, put it in your coffee. Whatever. My dad used to wake me up at like 4 a.m. to go fishing or go do odd jobs. And he'd stir my coffee with a little bit of meth in it for me. Here you go, boy. Hurry up. You got to get out of here in five minutes. And we'd climb in the truck and take off. Now, I'm junior, you know. Mm -hmm. And my dad didn't have a good relationship with his dad. So he thought he'd be the complete opposite and raise me the way he wanted to be raised, which was like no punches pulled, no lies, no bullshit. My dad kept me on his knee to like, you know, I got old enough to where I didn't want to be nowhere near his knee and just wanted to live my, you know, experience life on my own, which is like, what, four or five years old. You no longer want to be, you know, hugged and held by your father right. uh, until I was like 14. And then I, I fought him, you know, because I was big enough now. I'm a grown man and you can't tell me what to do. And then I had to fight two of his friends from the trailer park too. And uh, and I, I was a mean, mean person, like for a long time. We were very poor when I was young. It wasn't until we moved to my grandparents' house that I actually had enough to eat that like uh, I didn't hate people that that were chubby or overweight because they had more food to eat. Like I was went without for my little brother and sister to eat enough, and I've just always been hungry. I just remember always having like a, a hungry feeling for more, it's like greed. That sounds awful. But you know, not just hungry like physically, like for food, but just I need more. Like, oh, just, okay. I thought you like, meant. I thought you simply meant food. That too. That but, too. Yeah, but so my, I have a friend. She talks regularly about comfort food because that's like her favorite thing. You know, cakes, cheesecakes, pastries, and I'm like, I I don't have a favorite dish. I don't have a favorite kind of food. I don't care. Like, it's sustenance is sustenance. Feed me, and I'm happy. Yeah. So like, prison wasn't a long stretch for me because the food's there is not very great, but I don't care what it tastes like. You know, I I choke it down and take off. I'm done. So let's talk about your your first prison terms. Um, what what do you remember? What are some snapshots, some little stories that that stick out in your brain that you remember? Well, I, I have unfortunately been blessed with a, a very long and strong memory. Uh, a lot of people that do drugs, like I have or do, uh, don't can't remember stuff. They have big ch chunks and periods of time that they don't remember. I I do remember almost everything from my whole life for some damn reason. And my first term was a lot of fun, a lot of mistakes and uh, a long period of like, 
trying to prove myself in county jail and then in reception for prison and then in, in prison and then uh, paroling after my date and catching more time. I got 16 months with half for a stolen car and a gun, but they didn't find the gun on me. It was in a hotel room they raided and uh, I stood up for it, but it was like not on my person. Like the five other people that were in the hotel room had their guns on them. Mine was on top of the TV in a like gun case because it was a an original uh, numbered revolver 22 special edition, like Western style gun made by some, I don't know. It was like a fucking thousand dollar revolver pistol. That was pretty nice. And so I sat on top of the TV, like, like a display or something. And mm-hmm. when they came in, they, I stood up for it. And then they got me uh, like a week later at the extended stay with coming off the elevator with the, bag of beef jerky and a bag of moon pies. <laughs> I mean, a duffel bag full of these things uh, because I had stolen the Frito-Lay truck in front of the gas station <laughs> two miles away and uh, drove it to my buddy's hotel room where he just had happened been watching, been watched by the cops for uh, selling drugs out of his hotel room. So I I got caught up in that. But, but when they got me, they were like, oh, who cares what he's doing? Does he have a gun up there? No. Okay. This guy, we got this guy. With this Frito Lay truck full of moon pies and beef jerky, uh, that's so. I got your first GTA. You get six six months. Grand Theft Auto for yeah. Your first one, you get six months. It's like a, it's a felony, but it's punishable by six months, and they give you a whole bunch of restitution. Your second one's a mandatory prison sentence. Uh, so my first one, I got busted by this female deputy named uh, well, we won't say her name, but she she got me the first time, and she. In that bust, because I was a known gang member at the time, uh, considered armed and dangerous and all that fun stuff they label us, you know, uh, she got accommodations for that. The second time she got me, and I actually went to prison, uh, she testified on the stand, and she's looking at me like, didn't I just bust you for, like, what, eight months before that one? And I go, yeah, I got sentenced to six months. That's why it was so long between visits. Thank you, ma'am. And everybody in the courtroom was laughing. I'm thinking, man, that's great. So she made sergeant, and then... uh Later down the line, she took the detective's test on her own and got that without me. But, like, <laughs> when she got to be the detective of the GTA division out there, uh, she got me again. She had you on speed dial. She got me. Yeah, I mean, that's my MO is with stolen vehicles. So she got me again for GTA. And uh, last time I seen her, I was at the station for uh, something, selling dope or something during the pandemic. And she was like, watch, Sergeant. She made her, she was ready to retire. She's like, aren't you done? Aren't you ready to retire yet? I'm like, this is my retirement, you know? And it kind of like, the pieces, are, that's when the pieces started falling together that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but just to see her like getting ready to, to be done. She, to like, have she's a, got nails. And yeah. I remember when she was starting her career and she was like gung-ho and like always had her hair in a tight bun. And now she's got like her hair curly and nice. And I'm like, where did I go wrong? You know, I should be. 401k in it this whole time and getting ready to retire like she is. But, you know, I was getting ready to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and sleep with like 200 dudes. So when you talk about trying to impress people when you get into prison in reception and uh, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera, what, what do you specifically mean by that? Well, um, we mentioned that I'm a, I'm a white man in a Hispanic uh, gang, prison gang. Um. They're always just like, oh, that person, we got to do this or that, and this person's got to get beat up, or we got to get this over there and, and send the white boy. 
send the white boy. And so uh, it wasn't hard for me to make a name for myself quickly because, you know, they're willing to sacrifice me. Sure, because you're the lowest uh, yeah. on the totem pole. Yeah, and because, you know, everybody's got fucking gripes against somebody else or mm-hmm. whatever reasons. Uh, so before I went to prison on my first term, I caught a bunch of time in the hole and it, up the northern facility, it's a dungeon. It's like literally... Was it Pelican Bay? No, no, no. In, in county jail. Oh, uh, county. Wayside. Okay. Yeah. At Wayside, it's like literally a, like a dungeon. The beds are different. Is this Supermax? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that uh, level eight dorm? Yeah. No, okay. it's the hole from the level eight dorms. Yeah. Yeah, the dungeons. The It's 836 or something, bro. Eight, yeah. eight, the 835. I've never been up to... Uh, I've only been up to 700 as a visitor, not as a uh, not as a, as an inmate. But 700 is as high as they will let visitors go because it's too dangerous for them in eight. And I've always wondered... Who are these guys in 800? And it turns out the guy across the table from me. Yeah. Um, I like to joke around that I'm like the people that your parents warned you about, but it's not funny. It's it's actually kind of, you know, shameful now that I'm trying to rub elbows with people that aren't uh, career criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the 800s is where I started Supermax. Uh, my points would go up and down as I got busted for different crimes or like I'd come in low and then catch more time inside and my points would go back or they'd rec- one of the cops would recognize me and pull me into the 800s. The only difference is like the bars in the front. There's no bars that go because in the six, five, six, and seven hundreds at Supermax, the bars go from floor to ceiling right. for the dorm. It's all chicken wire for the 800s. So that, uh, I, I mean, I don't know why it's chicken wire. I don't know why it's different, but it's like thick wire, uh-huh. you know, it just chicken mesh instead of bars. And uh, we get more program time, which is weird. Hmm. And, oh, and we have our own visiting. That's why you guys aren't allowed there. It's its own separate visiting. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. Were there low points for you in? Uh, I, I should say, I'm, obviously there were. What did they look like? Your low points in prison, Is it particularly anywhere you that gave you pause to look at your life. Well, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Share I, share some of them if you would, if you're comfortable. Uh, so for me, I'm kind of very strange in that regard. Like when I'm doing really bad and things are at their worst for me, I don't consider that kind of stuff. I that's where I'm comfortable. That's like where my mellow comes in, and like I can just sit there in my misery for a long time. Is it because it's familiar? I, I'm not sure what it, what the reason is. I'm sure that could be it. But yeah. uh, like when I'm in the hole at, in the county jail and like all we have is boxers and socks and they give us dietary, uh, disciplinary diet, which is just a mash of everything they gave everybody else into a loaf and serve it like that. It's uh, I could get through that. It's when I'm doing good and like things are good that I have time to pause and think about how I feel. And it, it's always bad. Like. When I get paid a large chunk of money for selling a car or something, I get weird. I feel bad. Or like when I get money finally in, in county jail and I go to store for once in like two months and I order soup and coffee and I'm like about to drink some coffee. I just have this really icky, horrible wow. feeling. When when you were stealing cars and 
you know, doing doing these other things, some of which I imagine involved a gun and scaring the shit out of a complete stranger. Um, did you did you ever pause and think about the emotional toll that your actions were having on other people, or was it? Did that not appear until you got sober? It, no, it 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 was there the whole time. Like I wasn't raised. Uh, I mean, I was raised with morals, and and my dad, like I said, didn't lie to me or pull punches. He told me everything he thought about the world and everything he knew about stuff, and taught me how to work and and stuff. And uh, I knew right from wrong. I can't say that I knew that I didn't know that it was wrong to steal somebody else's car. I generally did it when nobody was in it, and the gun is gun was for like if you catch somebody in your car trying to steal your car. You're going to shoot at them. You're going to try to get them away from your vehicle. And uh, getting a shootout without a gun is pretty rough. So I started carrying guns. Um, and a gun's a good reason to go, uh, you know, higher points. It wasn't like what I intended at first, but as I, I went to those Higher homes, points as in harder, harsher term? Well, higher points as in like the higher security. I, I, jail, you mean? Yeah, I, okay. it's easier for me in higher security jail than it is in like the lower Why? security. Because uh, in lower security, they, you get a bunch of fucking idiots that don't know nothing and uh, like to speak up on stuff they don't know about. And uh, it's just it's a lot more more amateurs. Stupidity. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot more stuff has to go down. And where I sit, like I I would have to jeopardize more. I see. More people need "quote unquote" straightening out, right? And I'm I I I better uh, not in the back than I am in in the back. You know, I'm worth more not in, not in the hole than I'm than I am in the hole. Gotcha. What's the hole like? It's just like regular time, but uh, with less people. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. And uh, you know, they take all your. Property, you got no property. The nothing to read. The dungeon at Supermax. They gave us a New Testament, and I got sentenced to twenty days for that for uh, beating up a guy at the court holding tanks when we went to court because he was just acting way out and threw an apple across the cell when I was using the restroom. And I told him he was an older gentleman. Said he was a pitcher or something for Anaheim, like he played for the Angels. And I, I didn't believe a word he was saying, but you know. Everybody's got stories. Mm-hmm. And when he threw the apple, I was like, okay, old man, you get up and leave that, that spot on the bench, I'm going to beat you up. If you stay right there all day long and shut your mouth, I'm going to let you go because that didn't hit me, but I should be beating you up. And he got up and went to the bathroom. And I said, what did I tell you? And he's like, you can't tell me. Like in hysterics, raising his voice. And I just, I hit him like four times. Everybody else in the holding tank started singing happy birthday. And I'm looking down at him like, do you, do you understand now, old man? Like, shut the fuck up. And uh, he didn't say nothing the whole time, the whole bus ride. And then we get to Supermax, and he got to his dorm, and he told on me. And I don't know how he knew my name. He must told have, the authorities. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they came and got me from my dorm and gave me 20 days in the hole. And uh, back then, they, they would just shove more people than are supposed to be in the cell. So there was three people in the cell. Two on bunks and one on, on the floor on like a little mattress. I was the dude on the floor. And uh so one of my bunkie one of my cellmates was this dude who had was fighting double life through a mishap. He didn't mean to shoot any of the anybody any of those people, but he had like a big scar on his face from getting stabbed in his face in a knife fight at a bar after he'd shot one person and then ended up killing somebody else. Uh 
that was an interesting story and an interesting interesting night because he left the next day, I think it was, out of the hole to go back to the 800s. Uh, and some other dude comes into the cell, and we didn't want three people in the cell. So when one of the, the, the third person left, me and him made a pact. We're not going to let anybody else come to the cell. Like, it's just going to be us in here. If you don't keep us in here forever, then we're going to keep our cell. This is all we control. So every time that door would open, they tried to put somebody in there. We'd just jump on them. And every time we did that, they would double our time. So assaults 20 days in the hole with disciplinary diet. Uh, do it again. That's 40. Do it again. There's another 40. Uh, I was in there like three months before the sergeant came to our cell. And he's like, every time we try to put a third dude in here, it's because one of you assholes is leaving in two days. Probably sooner than two days. So stop doing what you're, whatever the fuck you're doing. I mean, him had to reevaluate the whole thing because, you know, we could actually leave if we stopped hitting on people. Uh, about a month and a half later, the door opens and they, somebody comes in and we both grab his stuff. Like, here, man, here's your spot on the floor. Welcome. Uh, then he left. And I got to stay there another two months or something. And then uh, they came and opened the door one day, the back door, and said, grab your stuff. You're catching the chain. You're going to prison tonight. And I looked back at like where they were pointing, like grab your stuff. And I, I realized I didn't have anything. I've been wearing the same clothes for like three and a half months, four months. Sitting in that room that the lights never turned off, reading the same New Testament. Every time I'd go from cover to cover, I would like memorize different parts of the book. At one point, I knew the 12 tribes of Israel and their descendants and uh, <laughs> half a numbers by word by you know, it was it was pretty bad. Was any of the Bible sinking in emotionally or spiritually with you, or was it just a way to stave off boredom? No, I, I've always had uh, the questions in mind of uh, you know how do we get here? What what are we, mm. is anything we do important? Uh, but I've never found the answer, and the, the answers definitely were not in that uh, in any book for me at any time in my life. I've gotten some good ideas to think about, but I've never gotten answers from from anything. Uh, I've learned to just live with the fact that I'll never know, and it's not it's above my pay grade to know the answers that unlock the universe. But uh, I've also I've read the New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, a few other religious texts, and they all have different ideas about the same thing, and I, I agree with that same thing. The Book of Buddha was pretty good, but it was a little more, it was a little harder to get to that point because you know somebody translated it poorly, I think. But I've, I've read a bunch of religious and spiritual texts, and I'm still searching. So, what led to you uh, changing your life? Uh, so, I went to my last term. I uh, I went upstate. They gave me seven years, eight months, and I got an in-house, so I got another three years on top of that. And I had enough time to go to prison, to fire, prison fire camp, but and low enough points finally. Because my first three prison terms were like high level three, and they just slowly drop as you don't get in trouble and you do more time. But And fire camp is the lowest. But. It's it's pretty much, yeah, It's it's there's no fences, but you have to fight fires. Yes. So... I had enough time and, and low enough points that they sent me to Susanville, which is a 14-hour bus ride with that, you know, no stops, no standing up. Um, that was pretty rough. and I'm, I was Leg thinking, chains, handcuffed. Oh, yeah, shackled your feet and your hands and your feet shackled to your hands. 
you know, you take half steps. It's really rough going up the stairs to get into the bus. They have a nice speech for you when you get in. Like, if I hear you talking, fucking, I'm, I'm going to beat you up and turn you upside down in your seat, and you'll ride the rest of the way like that. And because you can't move your hands or your feet, you, like, tend to just shut up because you don't want to get turned upside down. Uh, the cops actually have guns on them. Everywhere else in jail, they keep the guns at the door because they don't want to be, you know, there's obvious safety risks with that. Right. But on the bus, they're, they're heavily armed. And it's a long, fucked up ride in a paper jumpsuit. And so when we got there, I was thinking, this better be fucking worth it. You know, I could have stayed down south and just did my regular program and got through this like I do all my other terms. And I got up there and it was definitely different. The The way everything was set up was different. The way the people, uh, the, the way the different races interacted. But it's because everybody was trying to get to camp. And uh, I passed all the physical, you know, all the physical stuff, no problem. All the mental stuff, you have to learn the 10s and 18s, the watchouts and the uh, the warning signs for firefighting. Um, they were pretty easy. I went to fire camp and uh, became a chainsaw like my second week there. And I spent the next four years pretty much fighting fires and running a fucking chainsaw at the front of the crew. And it was fucking amazing. I was a hero. We all were heroes. All those guys are fucking heroes. Yeah, you, some of those wildfires in California, some of the scariest shit I've ever seen. And I'm watching it on TV. Yeah. And they, they, those inmate crews fight right on the fire. They're type two hand crews and they fight fire right on the line. They don't start fighting fire until the point where the dozer can't get to anymore. Like the way that they consider a fire contained is uh, they run a, they run a ring around it and put hose around it. If it doesn't pass that line, then uh, it's contained. So you have to cut a line right on the fire's edge and put some hose down. So we go in first and cut the fire. Then the fire crews come through, the regular firefighters with hose, and they tie the hoses together and they charge it and they stand there next to their hose connections to fight the fire. Did you view yourself any differently when you were, even, even though this was a part of your punishment, you were doing something that was helping society rather than hurting it? Did it, did any of that, was any of that conscious in your brain? Um, mostly it was like, I'm, I'm a very physically, I'm a very physical person. Like I work hard, I play hard, I like... I've, I've never had any friends. I've always been like uh, men are just to be, you know, beat up or like intimidated or, you know, I just never had anybody in my life that I respected except my father that was a male. And uh, when I got to fire camp, some dudes on that crew did some stuff that was uh, kind of cool, you know. Like how so? There's like that, like when we be out there working, some guys can't work or just are lazy or slow. Other guys are up there working with di with me just to the, the limit of physical endurance, you know, like just doing the most insane hikes and then cutting fire and fucking going fast. And it just for hours, we're on 24 hour shift and we're cutting line for 12 hours straight, stop for a cigarette and get back up and do keep doing it. Uh, and I started respecting some of those guys. And uh, that's when I, I started learning the value of friendship. And my, my best friend up there was this Northerner dude who was about my, my height tatted down with northern tattoos, and uh, it was kind of fucking cool. It was kind of cool having friends and being a fucking hero and a part of something that wasn't like uh, 
trying to fuck everybody over and uh, still even from your best friends, you know? And is there a, a kind of uh, an agreement in fire camp that it doesn't matter if you're from the north or the south, you're going to leave that? No, but like we we fight fire together, but like we, me and me and uh, my boy, we'd be up on the mountain and we'd still have our own cigarettes. We wouldn't share food or cigarettes or drinks, but like we had a fucking great time. We'd dig a hole at night and sleep next to each other and fucking t- tell ghost stories. And it was just like, a completely different situation that I ever faced. And we fought some of the biggest fires in California history. And uh, we'd save, literally be saving communities and leaving, going back to base camp. And we, the people that live in those homes would be outside with signs. Thank you, firefighters. And it, it slowly. At Thank you, t- firefighters. Where's my car? Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> like the Napa fire took out. 10,000 houses. Right. And as we drove through those neighborhoods, you'd see one house in 10 that was burnt down. And then you'd go to another spot and there'd be one house in the middle of 10 that got burnt down that did not even get scorched. Fire's crazy. I can't it, it imagine. It's its own thing. Um, so you learned about friendship. Uh, did it did it boost your self-esteem at all? It gave me some pride in myself, sure. It gave me a, a pride in what I was doing. My captain used to tell me all the time, dude, you're going too fast. You're doing too much. Like, look at the rest of your team. Like, be more considerate of them. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm fighting fire. <laughs> uh, but it gave me it gave me a sense of, uh, like, being, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I never had that before. Like, I had pride in the gang, but, like, those guys were always trying to fucking screw me over or, you know, I never got the fucking, the best side of the deal. Uh, fire camp, like, we're all fighting for the same goal. And like, there's thousands of firefighters at these base camps and we're all fighting for the same thing. And we're all doing the, you know, it was just a big sense of like camaraderie and a shared goal. Yeah. And, we, and like people were patting us on the back for what we we're doing instead of like hiding their jewels from us. It was great. Uh, but when I paroled, I had nowhere to go to except home, which was the streets, you know, and uh, I had nothing but the $200 they gave me and, the clothes I was wearing, so I used the money I bought and bought a motorcycle. The money I made at camp, and I bought a motorcycle. They pay you $1 an hour the whole time you're fighting fires. Uh, and then I got a call from my mom, like, maybe two, three weeks after I paroled, saying, your dad's dying. And my parents moved to Reno after my first term to get away from me and my uh, crazy life, because it was boiling over into everybody else's, I mean, even five or six years after my grandparents moved out of Santa Clarita to live up in Reno, the cops were still raiding that address. Wow. And they, but they didn't live there in five years. So like they were just doing whatever they could to fucking get me. Cause I was considered, you know, armed and dangerous and a threat to community. Uh, like I, I like to boast, you know, I'm the people your mom used to warn you about. Well, they, they look for those guys. So when I came home, I was I went from being a hero to being a nobody to racing to Reno on my street bike in winter, the back way, so I can get there, the 395, um, in like a month. And it, it was like a big identity crisis I was having because I'm somebody in prison and I'm, and I'm nobody on the streets. Like both the gangs that I, I joined as a kid uh, are gone. There's nobody else out there fucking burning the streets or making money or doing anything from my neighborhoods. Uh, 
I had no, everybody I knew had like, everything changed. The girls I knew all had dudes or All the technology kids. changed. Yeah. I mean, it's a different world. It's a shell shock you get kind of after afterwards. So I made it to Reno on the on my street bike through the snow and, <clears throat> and chain checkpoints. And I was there 10 minutes and my mom had insulted me, said that she was glad my grandma passed away and uh, called the cops on me. So I left. And did you have any outstanding warrants? I was on parole in California. Oh, so you weren't supposed to be up there. And my sister, uh, I hadn't seen her in years, and she hates me for being <clears throat> very overprotective and uh, vocal about that. I didn't let my sister or brother get high, and I made sure that I, I put hands on any dude that ever talked to my sister that I found out about. And uh, Why? What's the matter with a guy talking to your sister? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I could explain it to you, but it's not going to make sense. So okay. it's just me being an asshole and being able to do that. Gotcha. You know, I was me ex- exerting my physical dominance on people that uh, I didn't need to just because um, I had an excuse. So it, it, it sounds like your sense of self for much of your life was ex- being able to exert your will, impose your will on other men. Uh, yeah, well, on everybody, pretty everybody. much. Everybody, yeah. okay. Women I would charm, men I would just, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. Uh, I tried. It didn't work. The, the world is bigger than I am. I, it's hard for me to admit that now. I think that's the first time I ever did admit that. You can, We're kind of breaking through something right now. Uh, but, yeah, I never cared about nothing or nobody until my dad passed away. I mean, I, there was girls I thought I loved, I was obsessed with. There was... Uh, People I thought that were my friends, but like it was transactional. Everybody in my life had, I mean, going to prison, you lose everybody on the streets and getting out of prison, you lose everybody in prison. So I did that six times without really batting an eyelash at it until my dad passed away. And it was like the world was real. Finally, I met a woman and she said she had the same goals I did, which was like to grow up and get out. Uh, She had no intention for that. I did, and I would show that to her on the regular by, like, trying to go to rehab and other things and uh, completing parole. But I'd always get caught up for something else. And either I talk my way out of it or I get caught up with it and get the best I can, you know. But I went to uh, rehab three times. I went to rehab, completed twice. And the second time I completed, I went to sober living afterwards because there's nothing out there for me. But I didn't do any of that until I was, like, on top. Like, having money, finally, and, like, two cars and two motorcycles and places and things drove me to go to rehab the last time I went. Because, like I said, when I have money and, and stuff, I feel icky. Like, I don't I don't like having money or spending money or, like, getting money. Money's an ugly tool that rules the world. And I, I, I personally don't... Uh, like it, I like the barter system better, but I went to rehab after collecting a bunch of money from the pandemic and selling a couple cars and making a few moves and catching a bunch of cases. When I got there, I was fighting seven felonies, and they would take me to court, and they'd be like, wow. Most guys, again. Most guys get one felony. You know, you're on, you're on the docket three times for seven. I'm like, yeah, we'll be lucky if they don't give me ten. Talking to lawyers and, and law speak and talking to the judge like – 
you know, give me the best deal you can, Judge, when you go back there because uh, these guys aren't. But I ended up taking a joint suspension, and they put a bunch of expectations on me. And they're like, you know what? You're, they, the, judge, the judge even posited. He's like, uh, he goes off the record. Uh, you know that you know what you're taking because when you sign this with your record, you're probably not going to be able to do it. I was like, I know, Your Honor, just give it to me anyways. And I did everything they asked me. I did it for longer than they asked me to. I did. I'm still doing it. But like, it wasn't until I mean, I was making that choice and I was choosing to try to do that because I wanted to keep the girl. It wasn't until my sponsor showed up at the rehab and was like, bro, I love you, but you need to tell me how much time do I need to take away from my family for you? Are you doing this for real? Because I'll, I'll come here every day. Are you doing this just to appease the courts? Because then I could come once a week. I got two kids, you know? And this is one of my, like, buddies that any moment we could die of an overdose or something stupid because we were just stupid out there, you know? Uh, to see him doing good and to say that to me made me actually try. I actually, like, put my heart into it. And it changed. It, that, that moment was, like, the pivotal point where, like, I was on the fence about doing it for real because I'd been to rehab four times after prison terms, which is not when you should need rehab. You know, they should send you to rehab before you go to prison. But I'd go there after prison terms and never even really hear what they were saying. I, I Here I am now, uh, almost three years clean. I got three sponsees. Um, my sponsor's got a sponsor who's got a sponsor. And uh, I know all those men and call them regularly for advice. And they call me for advice, which is weird because the only thing I really know about is going to prison or getting out of prison or what you do when you're in prison or how to get to prison. Uh, you know, make a right at 395. Um, <laughs> but I, the, my biggest problem is like I don't wear it on my face. People don't know it when they look at me. And so like I'll be stuck trying to figure out something real life has people have licked because they've been living it. And uh, I don't know how to ask for help. I, I mean, I do. It's just like a pride thing. One of the things that has moved me the most being friends and acquaintances with you is seeing the difficulty when you speak in our meeting and you get vulnerable and we can see how new it is for you to drop the prison bravado and, and to say, I, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm scared. And I think that's, that's when I really uh, began to feel close to you uh, and, and a, a connection to you was when you let that down. And it's one of the most beautiful things I get to experience in my life is when a guy with a hard shell or a woman with a hard shell lets that down and invites other people in. That's, um, you know, that's exactly what what it is that kept me at the sober living for so long. Like, it's just, it was the example that I saw when I got to the meeting. Because the first time I went to that meeting, uh, I got to speak and it was on Zoom still because of the pandemic. And I felt like I did a horrible job. And I, I mean, my story doesn't change. It's the same story. But it was just like I said, um, about a thousand times. And, and 
Then I started going to the meetings, went back to in person. And so everybody had heard my story. They knew who I was. They'd call on me and they didn't judge me. Like I was accepted. These grown men who like obviously have better lives than I do would come up and give me a hug and say, how you been doing? And ask me questions about stuff I talked about months prior. And that was, that was new to me. Like, why do these guys care about anything that I got going on? Why would they even remember? Um, Thomas was a, he, I, I probably cut his name out of there too. But no, no, no. He's been a, a guest on the podcast. We he, used his name. He was a big uh, influence in my life, uh, like an example on how to uh, be of service. Yeah, he is, he is a great example of service. And I, I worked with uh, his sponsor at, like for a job. But he paid me a uh, you know, pay yet. And that dude is like a, I mean, I don't have, I don't know the words to say, but he's like a way up there in the like respect part of my brain. Uh, I love that dude. And he, he, when he speaks, like he speaks right to me and it's weird because he'll call me and ask me for advice and then end up talking for 10 minutes. And like my life is figured out, you know, and he didn't, we didn't even talk about me. I didn't even get to talk and like he just fucking cleans it out. And it's that it's those gems that I get from the the program, the club that uh, has helped, kept me keep coming back. Like at the hardest moments, um, one of the guys that was at the house, got, I kicked him out for behavior stuff, and he was eighteen when I picked him up. He was there for eight months, like learning how to be a man, just going through tr the trials and tribulations, and like the stuff that he was too bullheaded to do with his family. You know, go get a license, that learn the book, uh, the DMV book. Just simple shit, you know, and uh, he OD'd when he left and it was a big, it was a big thing. And I was like, I talked to his parents a whole lot while he was there because he was a knucklehead and uh, I was a Paul Bear at the funeral. They had a huge service, huge family, and they honored me by asking me to be a Paul Bear. And then eight months later on my birthday, they, they hit me up, which I, I never, I didn't tell anybody about my birthday. I stayed home and didn't call or open the door or answer the phone or nothing. And I had a great day. That's what I wanted. Usually on my birthday, I'll get my mom flowers and uh, call it a day because it's really her day, you know. But they made me dinner. They gave me a cake, sang me happy birthday. And it was the most uncomfortable, <laughs> like, painful and drawn out thing I've ever done. And it was probably the most, like, important thing I'd ever done in my life, you know. Was this Julian's family? Yeah. Yeah, I remember Julian. Yeah, and they, like, just for them to invite me into their home, eight months after uh, the whole, the, the death, and sing me happy birthday, and nobody else even knew. Like, they, how did they know? You know? It was very uncomfortable, and because it was all about me, in a, in, a fa in a house where, like, I feel like I let their, you know, I know that I didn't, but I feel like I let their son die, you know? And uh, it was great. Like, those are the moments that make things so uncomfortable, I feel okay. You know, what's funny is when we're, if you, if you rewind to four years before that, when you're in prison, you're getting loaded, you're still breaking the law, we never imagine that we're going to have a beautiful moment in our lives if we clean our act up. No, we, we just think we're going to be bored and irritable and everybody's going to be annoying us. Yeah. And we have like daydreams of like coming up on a 
kilo of coke or some stupid <laughs> shit, you know? Oh, I find a car with a woman and a, and a bunch of dope. Hey, can you, can you give me directions or come with me to the hotel? Sure. <laughs> like, those are the moments we live for, you know? But, like, now that uh, my head's on a little straighter and uh, the road's a little more narrow, the moments I live for, like, uncomfortable minutes like that, or, like, when I get called on unexpectedly to the podium to speak and I actually have something to fucking talk about. You have a lot of shit to talk about. I got a lot of trauma. It's not really conversation pieces. But, buddy, it helps people. It helps me. Um, it's, you're somebody that I'm comfortable picking up the phone and calling. I can't say that about everybody that I meet in meetings. They're, they're just, uh, I don't know, certain um, relationships where it just feels like they're something kind of um, clicks. And you're like, yeah, I'd like to talk to that guy. You know? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of people I find interesting either. So, uh, I, but lately, cause I mean, the girlfriend broke up maybe, it's been a while. It's, we, we broke up a while back, but I'm still trying to unpack that and figure it out why I, you know, feel like shit about it and other things. Like, but you did it to protect your sobriety cause it wasn't healthy. Yeah. That, and, and dude, that's a fucking strong move. It, yeah, it didn't feel good. But the fact that you walk, I mean, so many people new in sobriety are not willing to walk through the healthy thing that is painful or uncomfortable, and it takes them out. And again, one of the reasons I, I, I love when you speak, uh, there is a light within you uh, that is inspiring and when guys roll in there that are new, it never occurs to them that they can be inspiring people who have been there for two decades before they got there. It it can give us a fresh, fresh perspective on how we're living our lives and our fear of doing the right thing that feels uncomfortable. Well, I, you know, and I'm glad you said that because when I was a kid, I was raised to like respect my elders and to like hang out with the older people if I want to know what the fuck, what really is going on. I mean, I'm sure it had a lot to do with my dad taking me everywhere with him and not hiding nothing from me. But like when I'd go to prison, I'd hang out with the older guys and I was accepted into that crew because uh, I held myself a little higher. But in the club, that's what you're supposed to do is like find the guys who got more time than you and, and just do what they do. And it's because of you guys sharing honestly and openly at the podium that like it gave me the power to do that. And I, I hate meetings. I've always hated meetings, but like that meeting, it's not like, it's not like one. It's not like a meeting. It's no, like, it's not. It's, it feels like a clubhouse. Cause you guys accepted me and I have yeah. friends there. And it, like I said, I didn't ever have friends, you know? Well, buddy, uh, I, I really appreciate you open up and sharing your story. And I'm, I'm glad that our paths have crossed and, uh, I, I appreciate your friendship. I do too. I, I love you, bro. And I, I wish I had something more exciting to talk about. So, buddy, that was great. Love you. That's amazing. It, after after such a compelling story like that, <laughs> that he would think that that wasn't that wasn't interesting. Uh, it's just amazing the mean voice in our head. This shit it will tell. It will tell us. Love love talking to him. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a gender fluid person who calls themselves Danny and about their anxiety. They write, my girlfriend and I went out to chill by the apartment pool. A police helicopter circled above us while we were swimming several times and wouldn't stop. We left the pool early because I couldn't calm down. An overwhelming panic hit me that the helicopter was there to arrest me, even though I knew that it didn't make sense. Later, I asked my girlfriend to reassure me that the helicopter wasn't for us because I couldn't stop thinking about it. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds uh, terrifying. It's so weird the disconnect between the intellectual and the and the central nervous system going, run! This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself, I can't seem to sleep. And they write, I love winning over a particularly standoffish cat. I meet them where they are and take as much time as needed to prove I'm a source of safety and peace. I get a very satisfying sense of accomplishment when I get them purring and crawling into my lap. I love dogs too, but with cats, the love seems earned and all the more special. And it's a great one. I feel the same way too. Dogs are cheap. Dogs are cheap. I do prefer dogs over cats though. Because then, yeah, you, you, you earn the cat's affection, but what does it last for? Maybe two minutes? My friend Mike comes over to watch the NHL playoffs with me and Gracie sits on him for three, four hours straight. Just And if he stops petting her, she paws his hand to keep petting her. You know, I don't, I suppose there are probably some cats that are like that, but I've yet to, I've yet to meet one. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself ex-critical care nurse about her depression. Too heavy of a weighted blanket on my chest, arms, legs, eyelids, holding me down. Um, about her anxiety, like something in the world is constantly out to get me. About her sex addiction, like nothing else matters more than my clit being touched. About living with an abuser, like sometimes I have to walk on eggshells, but I don't know when those times are, and I always end up fucking it up. Snapshot from her life. I was an IC. I forgot. Is that the gender? Yeah, female. Um... I was an ICU nurse during the pandemic. I had just started in this role when COVID hit. Holy fuck. I really enjoyed the actual work, but there were so many other stressors going on. The societal and cultural views around COVID, having friends and family that didn't believe it was true, while I worked full-time 
12 hours in the busy ICU watching people die every day was too much for me. I've always been a really strong person, persevering through everything. Uh, I was known as the strong friend. Strong friend. And I broke. I had a breakdown at work one day and got sent home. I worked two more shifts before going to my family doctor and asking for help. I had never asked for help before in my life. I was put on stress leave and antidepressants, diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, MDD, and PTSD. I was given a therapist who actually ended up being amazing and I still see today and had to work through the shame of feeling like a failure and a quitter because I had never failed or quit anything before. I now see that I am actually very brave and strong for asking for help and now work in a different area that I absolutely love and am thriving in. I realize that I don't have to be what everyone else has always expected me to be and I can do whatever the hell it is that I want. And that's okay. And if anyone has a problem with that, then get out of my life. Turns out, no one abandoned me. And I now am known as the mental health advocate in my friend group and community. I love that so much. And I imagine that the the feeling of failure and like uh, you weren't up to snuff must have been so powerful when, when you first uh, left. And I just, I just love that you were able to see the truth, which is that you asked for help. And it, it's like, it doesn't matter if somebody could have climbed a higher mountain faster. It's like, no, I'm, do, I'm done <laughs> mountain climbing. I need, to, I need to find something else to do. Good for you. Did that sound patronizing? I wanted it to. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence area. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself the list that reads, make a list. And uh, <laughs> about her anxiety, she writes, my ass cheeks are so fucking hard, I don't work out. <laughs> we do. We do pucker the ass when we're stressed. Thank you for that one. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Ronan. He writes, I was talking to my friend about the man I was sleeping with who was 10 years older than me. In parentheses, I was 16. He happened to be in the Navy. My friend asked to see a picture of him in the Navy, so I looked up his Facebook and showed her one that I saw. She gasped out loud. She pointed to the boss in the picture and said, oh my God, that's my dad. We call that a small world. Look who's in the Navy now. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dot. And she uh, writes, I've been listening to your podcast and found myself triggered by descriptions, descriptions of inappropriate sexual activity between siblings. My 14-year-old brother crept into my room a few times when I was 10 and would give me oral sex. He wanted me to go down on him too, but I remember refusing. Even at that age, I knew there was something wrong, but it felt good. After a few times, I started locking my door, and when he realized I'd done this, he stopped coming in. I've refused to think about this much. I've refused to think about this much, and only after listening to your podcast, I've started talking about it. Um, I don't know why I'm reading this wrong. I've started to think about it. I've always thought it disgusting and blamed myself for enjoying it. I'm now 50 years old and finally felt brave enough to tell a friend but she said it was okay because I said I wasn't traumatized. And besides, she said 
this was just normal childhood exploring. I would like to know if this is normal childhood exploration. Well, I, I'm going to say right off the bat that I am not a therapist so and not a trauma therapist on top of that, but I have opinions on this. And I would say that you're, these are my opinions. Your friend is full of shit. And we decide what is traumatizing to us. And, you know, trauma doesn't always feel traumatic. And I know that sounds weird, but trauma can be experienced as numbness. It can, it can later, the ripples of trauma can, can be compulsivity, um, isolating, anger, self-hatred. Those are the result of trauma. Um, some questions to, to ask yourself. Was it a lot for your central nervous system to handle what happened with your brother? I would imagine, yes. Could be wrong, but I would imagine it was fucking really intense. Um, was it overwhelming to your central nervous system, your soul, your sense of self, your sense of safety? Those are those are some questions to ask if you're if you're trying to say, you know, it wasn't traumatic. Um, and as far as is it is it normal? Yes, children explore with each other, but not in the ways that mimic the way that adults have sex. Um, that to me is not exploring. That to me is. Um, over the word for that, playing out something inappropriate that they saw or was done to them. So to me, that is, ch children don't naturally want to have that kind of in interaction with each other without the presence of something, being exposed to something that was too much for them at that age. But ultimately, it's all about processing this and you learning to be comfortable in your own skin. That's the, that, for me, is the road. Th this is just shit that's in the way that needs to be cleared to be able to have a chance to feel comfortable in our skin. And it's not like I'm walking around comfortable in, in my skin <laughs> 24 hours a day. No, but the percentage of hours in the day I'm more comfortable in my skin is gigantic compared to what it was before I started dealing with the shit that was traumatic to me. Some of it didn't feel traumatic at the time, but I look back and I remember it fucked with my head. I would imagine at the very least what your brother did to you fucked with your head and your body and your brain slash soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. So, um, you know, I had, a, I, I've shared this before on the podcast, but my, I was married for 20 plus years and my then wife would constantly suggest to me, not in a mean way, you haven't dealt with how creepy your mom is with you. You haven't, and it took me 25 years 
because it didn't feel traumatic to me until I was ready to give weight to what happened to me. And then I could, I could feel it. And it's not like I was trying to feel this. It just, sometimes I think part of recovering from sexual trauma is the, it, it's like the pieces of a puzzle that are just all spread out all over the place and just year by year, they're slowly creeping together and and then they kind of lock into place and we see a picture of something that hits us in a way that um, changes our trajectory in life. It's like we're either going to get help and deal with this or we're going to be running from this for the rest of our lives, you know, with food or acting out sexually or drinking or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. I feel like I was really long-winded with that, uh, that answer. This is a happy moment filled out by Dan. Oh, and one more thing I want to say about that. Go, I encourage you to go talk to a therapist who specializes in sexual trauma. I think that would be a really good thing or a support group that deals with intimacy struggles, um, especially ones around uh, incest. I know there's some 12-step ones around uh, incest. They're, 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 I think they're few and far between, but you can probably find something online. Anyway, sending you, sending you a, a hug. This is a happy moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls himself Dion or themself uh, Dion. Uh, they write, in high school, I fell in love mutually with my first boyfriend. Despite the kinks that needed worked out of an 18-year-old white dude, uh, he was full of love and care that was quite healing. Cuddling with him were the only times I ever fully relaxed. Our physical intimacy was communicative, exploratory, and concerned with everyone having as good of a, a time as possible. Three characteristics that have been difficult to impossible to find in a relationship again. Nowadays, I'm so lonely that I don't recall what it feels like to not have a knotted stomach, panging chest, and tight throat. I'm grateful for his love and care. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad you got to experience that so you, that, that you know it is possible. And even though I don't know you, I have a feeling you will find somebody again who you can relax around. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself showing up. She identifies as bisexual. She writes, I think of myself as Taka Tapui, which is kind of the Maori word for queer or two-spirit. She is in her 40s. She says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My parents split up after an unhappy marriage marked by my father's violence and affairs. My mother and I moved from a small majority Maori town in the North Island of New Zealand to a very white city in the South Island. Not long after that move, I was raped by a boy I had a big crush on at my new high school. It isn't the only time I've been raped, but it remains a defining moment in my young life. I was 14. I'd never had sex before, so that was how I lost my virginity. 
Mom and I lived with an aunt who was not fond of teenagers and bullied my mother. I didn't tell anyone about the boy raping me. I felt my mother had enough problems already. Later, I experienced being groped at a concert by a guy who looked like a skinhead while my boyfriend stood by telling me not to make a big deal about it. I was also, quote, grabbed by the pussy, unquote, by an older man on a Greek bus once. Before I knew what I was doing, I spun around and whacked him so hard in the chest, he staggered down the length of the bus and landed on a row of older women at the very back. They were shocked until they saw my face and understood my hand signals. Then they pushed him onto the floor. I was also raped by a woman, a friend of my boyfriend's. She was angry with me for having cheated on him. At least that's how she interpreted it. I was 19. He had left to live in England for a year. I had never told him I wouldn't sleep with other people because I knew I didn't want that kind of commitment with someone 12,000 miles away at that age. Anyway, Jay and I got drunk one time and I was staying at her house. She was my friend too. All I remember is her holding me down on the bed, shoving her fingers inside me again and again. It was painful and completely non-consensual. She was hissing at me, is this what you want? Is this what you want? As if me having had sex with someone else other than my boyfriend meant that I wanted to be fucked by anyone and everyone, including her. I have never told anyone about this. Wow, that is a lot. That is... Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, my father had violent mood swings and beat all of us. Me, my mother, my sister. I remember him nearly drowning me once, trying to show off to one of his friends that he was teaching me to swim, pushing me under the water again and again as punishment for doing baby-style dog paddle instead of proper freestyle. I was six. Good fucking Lord. He, in turn, had been completely fucked up by... His time as a child in a Catholic orphanage in New Zealand with sadistic nuns who did very similar things to him and his brothers and all the other children in that institution. The stories of his childhood are horrifying. Any positive experiences with abusers? My father is my Maori parent. I hope I'm pronouncing Maori right. Um, I am deeply drawn to our shared culture and language in the beauty and politics of our beautiful land. It is something I share with no one else the way I do with my dad. It is so painful to me that the violence of colonization has separated us both from so much of our history and had such a devastating effect on our tribes and our nations and the violence of the Catholic Church perpetuated by him as a parent has done the same things in my home, my childhood, and our family. Darkest thoughts. I am ashamed to admit that although I miss her very much, I do not regret leaving New Zealand and not being there for her when my mother died. At first, I thought the her meant New Zealand. I was like, oh, look at one of these fancy ladies that uh, refers to uh, the land as a lady. Uh, darkest secrets. When I was about 11 or 12, a friend of my sister, uh, a friend of my sister's, asked me to babysit her two kids. One was a toddler, a boy, and one was a little older, maybe four, a girl. I had been secretly reading my father's pornography for a while and rubbing myself against my bed, having orgasms. 
I was also reading the letters section of those magazines and learning about sexual intercourse between men and women. I decided that night of the babysitting that I would try and get the little boy to put his penis into me and do the things that I was reading about in the magazines. Not surprisingly, he didn't want to. I tried to make him do it. I didn't know why he didn't want to. Wasn't this what girls and boys were supposed to do? His sister protected him and locked them both in the bathroom. I don't remember if there were any consequences of this, though I know I was never asked to babysit again. I think my sister knew about it because I think the kids told their mom. I feel like a monster remembering it. I have never since then, as a teenager or adult, wanted to do anything like this with children. Even though I was only a kid myself, I cannot forgive myself for doing that to those little children. I would imagine that would be a hard thing to to think back on. But again, you know, your dad, you, I, I suppose you could go back generations. Your dad should not have left pornography around for for children to get into. Not to mention all of the shit that, that you were experiencing. Um, and I hope you can forgive yourself. The important thing is that is that you don't do it today. That's That's the most important. Uh, thing that you have control over. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I love having guys do housework for me while they are naked from the waist down and I am fully clothed, masturbating, watching them. I feel absolutely fine sharing this. I've worked hard for years on not being ashamed about any of my sexual fantasies or practices which are always consensual and very healing for me. That's awesome. And you get a clean house out of it except for maybe one spot how, how did i not take a swing at the ball is right there on the tee how do i not go for the joke what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'd like to tell the nun who raped and tortured the boys at the orphanage where my dad was that what she did and what that church still stands for is nothing to do with god what if anything do you wish for stability and joy have you shared these things with others? Yes, with counselors and friends over the years. Nowadays, I'm so sick of most of these stories, of the sound of my own voice telling them. I know it helps, though. How do you feel after writing these things down? About six tons lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I love you. I love it. I love it. What a great example of the how our soul can survive and still be capable of love through the most awful shit. Thank you for that. And then uh, finally, this is from the psych ward experiences survey. And this is filled up by a woman who calls herself Manny Coon. Um, she's in her 40s. She writes... I always thought hospitalization is what happens to the cat ladies downtown. It's terrible to say, but I was afraid of both being surrounded by and associated with that. During intake, I was surprised to find myself waiting with a woman who spoke multiple languages and had a PhD in the sciences. What I saw on the ward was a lot of tired moms. It took a few days until I realized that PhD mom had constant police presence while her baby was around. She must have had PPD and possibly postpartum psychosis. 
The men were all older and I didn't understand them at all. One seemed to have gotten high one time and never came down. He'd say to anyone that crossed his path in the hallway, party on. On my first night, I was supposed to share a room with someone I'd describe as a cat lady. In my mind, I called her Magda. Uh, and then the parentheses, watch the kids in the hall sketch, Manny Coon, and thank me later. Magda was clearly agitated by my presence and bombarded me with intrusive questions. I asked nurses at the desk for a room change. No one tells you this, but in Canada, it's a long-ass process being admitted to a mental health ward. It can take half a day depending on when you come in and when doctors are up for shift changes. After hours going from ER to nurse to crisis nurse to crisis doctor to psychiatrist, I was too tired for Magda's bullshit. I'd finally laid down in my new room when Magda came and stood in the doorway. She was clearly looking for a reaction from me and asked why I was there. I was too tired to make anything up and I told her I was there because I was suicidal. She tried with everything she had to fix her eyes and lay some sort of meaningful curse on me and responded, and you always will be. Did she think I was in a space where I had anything left for feelings or a fight? Her curse felt shallow and pathetic. I felt then and still feel now, shut the fuck up Magda in response. For most of my life, my assumptions, and yeah, I'm going to say it even though many won't, my disgust about the cat ladies really held me back from getting mental health treatment. As much as I regret to admit, being on the ward with Magda did, in fact, have an equalizing effect. We would receive specific and different treatment, but both of us were in need of treatment intervention. I wonder often, what's the difference between me and Magda? I was in an abusive relationship when I went in, financial, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. The gaslighting and feeling like a prisoner in the homes where I paid all the bills had finally driven me over the edge. I believe now that trying to come to logical conclusions with an abusive person really is like negotiating with a terrorist. I needed paratroopers and medical help getting out. That said, you know what fucks me up? I think the difference between me and Magda is honestly just one beating you can't ever recover from. Did that happen to her? I hold Magda in my thoughts with sympathy in spite of not liking her, knowing that people with mental illness are more often the victims of violence and not the perpetrators. I was thankful to recover from what I went through. I wish I could say it wasn't my last abusive relationship. That happened only just over a year ago. I was university educated before and finished a post-grad program after the hospitalization and abuse stopped. I learned that a degree won't keep anyone from having a breakdown. Now I have been gainfully employed for the last six years. I don't have a PhD like the woman with PPD. I haven't faced homelessness because of my illness, but every day I live with awareness that additional weight to the load I carry already could push me into that, especially with the rising cost of living. This is my life. Therapy combined with firm and hard-earned boundaries protect me from additional weight. And everybody has a breaking point. If Magda was right about anything, it's that maybe I will always live in a state of trying to avoid my breaking point. In the parentheses, I am not suicidal. Everyone on the ward needed help. We needed help. 
it's tough to consider, but there is a me and a we in all this. The we in mental health is that we are all humans in bodies, minds, and circumstances that are imperfect. If I could say anything to someone in crisis, it would be two things. Mental illness is a health issue, not a personal failure. And for the sake of your very survival, please don't let classism or fear of the unknown keep you from getting the help that you need. Maybe there won't be anybody like you in the hospital. Is there truly anyone like you and your unique ass anyway? But maybe there will be too. One thing matters. You matter. You do. And you have the right to care and treatment. I hope you find it. And I hope you recover in time. Wow. That's beautiful. I am just, I say it all the time, but I'm so grateful for the surveys that get filled out on this show. The, the, the details, the, the compassion, the insight, uh, and just the fact that you take the time to go fill those out. Just, uh, I'm eternally, I'm eternally grateful. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, uh, just never forget You are not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.